Welcome to The Backbone, a journey inside finance at a startup. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. On The Backbone, we're obsessed with finance and operations at startups. We take a close look at finance functions within various startup companies by talking to finance leaders that are in there day in and day out. We chat startup finance, metrics, operations, and everything in between. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is Corey McAllishan, CFO at Solink. Solink creates smart insights from the raw data your business generates every day. Corey's title may say CFO, but his role at this fast-growing startup spans well beyond numbers and figures. With a wealth of skill sets and a focus on the big picture, Corey oversees the financial, operations, legal, and human resources functions at Solink. He credits his anti-micromanagement approach as the reason why his teams feel engaged and empowered to get results. Corey made the transition to the tech industry after earning his CPACA designation at Deloitte in their audit and assurance practice. Throughout his career, Corey has applied his energy and talents to building systems and teams from the ground up with a laser focus on determining what makes each success scalable, profitable, and measurable. Working from a powerful belief that the right teams get the right results, Corey has taken great care to select and nurture the growing team at Solink, encouraging a culture of personal development and lifelong learning. And so without further ado, let's hear from Corey himself, CFO at Solink. Good morning, Corey. Thanks for coming on The Backbone this morning. Let's get started right away. So you got your start at Deloitte, where you focused on high-tech startup, venture capital, and private equity. After that, uh, you were the controller at Optilian, a provider of optical networking equipment, and then you made the switch to where you are now at Solink. So talk to me about your journey into finance at a tech company and how it all started for you. Sure. I mean, I guess uh, it, it kind of all started back at Deloitte and it was, it was you know, being on audits and, uh, you know, visiting with teams and seeing them sometimes uh, a couple couple years in a row and just seeing the, the growth of the companies they were at and um, the excitement in their eyes as they kind of told us the, the story of the last year. And we were always there, you know, two, three, four months after the fact so it was them kind of reliving a bit of that glory but but then you know we're realizing that they were there in in those kind of exciting events and they were making decisions that impacted those events and i was always a little bit jealous of that and so i think at that point uh, when i became manager i thought it might be a good time to go out and get that experience firsthand and really get down into the detail at a company and that's why i took my first uh, step out to, to Optelian. And then from Optelian, you kind of got your feet wet and and operating within a, a finance uh, or in a finance capacity at a tech company. And then what, you know, triggered the, the move to Solink or what was the catalyst in, in getting that rolling? I think at Optelian, Optelian was very critical for my career at that, at that point to learn a lot of the day-to-day activities that are required to kind of to do what I call operational finance, the the payroll and check runs and AP and uh, AR collections, the kinds of things that you don't necessarily learn how to do in detail uh, working at a firm. And so, you know, between vacations and retirements and things that I'm telling you, I had a lot of ability to uh, take on each of those tasks and learn them from the ground up and make them more efficient, you know, and bring some of the experience that I had from some of the audits. Um, but it was really a good learning ground to to understand all the different nuances that go into an entire fully functioning uh, finance team. Then I had the opportunity because I had um, I had kept in touch uh, after meeting the CEO of Solink, Mike, 
um, we'd kept in touch over the years and uh, his company was, you know, Solink was growing to the point where it needed somebody to be taking care of the finance function full time. And I think he also wanted somebody who um, could kind of be his his right hand person um, and help with a lot of the the different things that Solink was going through at that stage. Um, and so he asked if I'd come on. I joined as uh, the VP corporate services and finance, basically in charge of all administration. Uh, and so I was able to kind of start out as, as you know, one person doing many different things, but really just to assist the business and, and support the business as it uh, pivoted and then kept, you know, continued to grow in building the, the version of the product that we have today. Sense, And we'll dive into that uh, a little bit later as to, you know, how uh, the finance function and how you specifically had to transform to take advantage or, or to be a part of uh, this this growth story. But what I wanted to do now is maybe learn a bit more about Solink and, and what that's all about. So Solink is a video based fraud prevention system um, that is delivered in a SaaS format. So we sign customers up who own brick and mortar retail, brick and mortar restaurants, quick service, gas stations, uh, banks, any kind of um, distributed store network where you have uh, a, a retail or brick and mortar store environment that you would have video cameras in. We tap into the video feed, we tap into a data stream like a point of sale system or an ATM stream, uh, and then we converge those two data sets to find potential fraud. And so that's that's the Solink 1.0 that we we are selling today, and it's really like a kind of security system 2.0. But in the future, what we see is the ability to use those data streams to provide operational insights to those same customers with the data that we already have access to. So we're not installing more hardware. We're not, um, you know, installing a different service or a different device. It's over the same device that's there, but it's increasing the value from the video and the data that customers already own and already have access to but they're just not using today. So uh, as you were talking about that, the way I'm kind of visualizing this and and correct me if I'm wrong is uh, let's say someone like this is installed at a gas station as an example. And if uh, today it's only being used by going back and forth between maybe the ATM and the POS there. Um, But in the future, you're saying like, if I walk in to go pay the attendant for gas and then I go by the beverages aisle and, and pick up up a bottle of Coke, it would be able to, I guess, piece that together? Is, is that uh, how, how I should be thinking about it? The best way probably to describe what exists today with our system is if you were to drive up to, a, to one of the gas pumps and you were to pump gas and then you just drove away, the system would automatically detect based on the two data streams that there was a video transaction that occurred, so gas pumping, but that there wasn't a POS transaction. And so it would flag that uh, immediately as something that was, was amiss and needed to be investigated and could escalate that within the system to uh, any number of people that would want to be notified of, of something like occurring like that. The next layer, though, in terms of the operational um, efficiencies would be using the video and the POS data to determine which of the POS or which of the gas pumps was most active and whether maybe there should be a different traffic pattern set up to increase the efficiency or the flow through of those um, gas pumps. So maybe one of the gas pumps isn't used at all. just because of the way it's Mm. oriented in the parking lot. And that can assist in any renovations, you know, uh, determining if some renovations should be made on the, on the building or in terms of potentially the corporate office or future sites for that owner, um, how else they might want to redesign it in the future. 
And then you can get into marketing collateral placement. You can get into uh, the placement of beverages in, in store because the, the beverages and the, and the snacks and uh, kind of conveniences that you get, those are the more profitable items that are, that are sold at a gas mm-hmm. station. And so if you can increase the propensity of those to be bought just by analyzing the traffic patterns of, of people and, um, uh, in, at the gas station or in, in the convenience store or, or just at the pumps, um, there can be a lot of insights that can be pulled from that in an automatic way. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the uh, aspect that, uh, you know, as you described, so link 1.0 today, is that information or that feed um, kind of in real time or because uh, I know like in more traditional security systems, it's, uh, you know, you or surveillance systems, you, you can look at it after the fact. But uh, is there a real time component to, to Solink? It can be um, as close to real time as, as we can get it. Normally, the, the limitation is on the POS side because certain POS systems will only batch process. So they'll actually post to a kind of central repository on a, on a schedule. So it might be daily, it might be hourly, could be weekly in right. some cases, right, for something that's really offsite. Um, but generally, um, I guess generally with video today, video is uh, an insurance policy, right? It, like you said, it's something that's viewed after the fact. So if you, you know, you saw a car peel away after stealing gas from you, and then you go to the video, to find something, but the video doesn't necessarily do any work for you proactively. And that's really what Solink is, is trying mm-hmm. to do is trying to make video proactive for the customers, effectively putting a, um, you know, an AI uh, investigation officer in your back office that's going to help find uh, potential fraud, either internal or external. That's awesome. That's really cool. So I think just as interesting as as the the product and concept itself, and this is the nerdy finance side of me, I guess, is uh, the the revenue model that that Solink has. You know, your your pricing starts at a uh, one hundred and seventy five dollars a location per month on a subscription basis. Now, I would imagine that organizations may start off with a few locations at the beginning, and then eventually roll it uh, out across all of their locations. And then over time, some of these locations may get shut down or, or move and, and things like that. So how does this impact how you think about churn at Solink? No, it's a great question. Um, I think for us, uh, churn is it when we're losing a customer. It's somebody that is not fully onboarded to the product. They don't get the value. It's, it's not um, you know, what they thought they signed up for. And that is something that we've screwed up. If a customer is shutting down a site, um, you know, we're going to accept that unit back and we're going to put it in another site or we're going you know, to put it in another customer even. But we want to build a partnership with our customers over a long period of time. And a lot of our customers, as you mentioned, do have multiple sites. Some of them, our largest customer has over a thousand sites. And you know, they're not going to put you in a thousand sites, you know, uh, um, to, on day one, they're going to put you in three sites, right? right? And you're going to get a three site pilot, 10 site pilot, and then you got to prove yourself from there. And so we've shown with our customers that we're willing to do whatever it takes to prove to them that what they are, the expectations that we set in the sales process is what the product delivers. And so, you know, whether it takes three months, six months, as long as it takes to, in order to prove that to them, the data has shown that we do tend to increase into all sites of our customers over time. We do have churn. Uh, thankfully, it's it's very, very low. And that's probably one of the um, aspects of our customer success team and our operations team in, uh, and our sales team even in, de- in setting those expectations and then delivering on them. Um, but, uh, but churn is always top of mind and it is always a, an important measure on the health of the business. And that's why we track it on nearly a weekly 
or even daily basis. Just to geek out a little bit more on on churn, um, especially as you have this concept of expansions through locations, I, I guess you can have the concept of um, customers churning, where it may go from, you know, they may have been installed in 10 locations and now whatever, for whatever reason, they choose to turn off all 10. But conversely, you can have someone who started off, like you said, on day one with three locations, and then couple of months down the road, they roll it out to, you know, 10 others or 20 other locations. And then you get into the concept of revenue expansion, which if you look, and then if you back out the customer that totally left, I mean, at the end of the day, you're still ahead because of this revenue expansion. So how do you think about revenue churn versus customer churn? And uh, for you, is one more important than the other? Um, I would say that we, tr- I mean, we track MRR on a per site basis. We've always done it that way because it's just a, it's it's the most natural unit. Some some SaaS companies will track on a seat basis. Some will track on a company basis if they don't sell by seats. We sell by sites, and so we track on a site basis. When we have a reduction of sites, you know, from whatever reason, we track that as churn. Even if it is just a closure of a site, it is important for us to understand the dynamics of what sites are closing in what areas and why. Because if sites are closing because they're not profitable, well, maybe our product, if it you know, did a different type of activity with that data that we have access to, maybe it could help that site be more product, um, more profitable. And so th- those are always things that we're trying to keep in, um, in our minds and get feedback on from our departing customers. And so that's what our CS team is uh, constantly doing when we do have churn. We- I think too, that there's also the ability when we do have customers churning to use that as an opportunity um, to to get feedback on the product, um, to feedback into the development and the product management process. Um, whenever we have a, a, a customer that does churn, if it is potentially just a site closure where there may be an unprofitable site that they um, you know don't want to keep operating, maybe our product with the data we have access to could have provided them more proactive information in order to improve the profitability of that site. Right. Mm-hmm. We are we are in partnership with our customers, and and this is part of the 2.0 that I had alluded to earlier. Um, there's a lot of of further value we can drive out of this data for our customers, and actually we're able to do it at a more cost effective way than the original security system because we have that device that's already been deployed for the 1.0 security play. If we then allow we layer on the the value. Um, through the operational insights, there's no more hardware that needs to be deployed. So it can actually be delivered to our customers in a much more cost-effective way. Makes sense. Makes sense. And that's really refreshing to hear, you know, using churn as a uh, a learning point for, you know, figuring out why did the customer churn and imp- making improvements to the product. Obviously, it sucks when a customer churns, but uh, if you can use that to, you know, enhance the product and, and make it more useful for the next customer, um, I think in the long run, that's a, that's a win-win. Every customer um, that you have, regardless of whether they're a super user or they're an average user or they're a, you know, potential churn, um, gives you information with which you can make your product better because you're not always going to have super users. You can't build a product with just super users. You can't build a product right. with just, well, you, you'd probably be uh, in trouble if you build a product just for, you know, potential churns, but you need to under, you need to listen to every possible customer and experience they're having because they're all valid. They are all customers within a market that you're selling into or potentially a tangential market that you could be selling into better. And so if you're not listening to them, then you're not, you're not, uh, 
you're not going to build the best product you can build for for the the opportunity that you're chasing in any startup. I would also imagine that there is a services component to your revenue to get customers initially set up onto your platform. And so services revenue tends to be fairly labor intensive and suppresses kind of traditional software margins. So as the CFO, how do you think about services revenue? And do you take that into account when pricing out uh, uh, accounts? So that is a great question. Um, We do take it into account, but we don't actually bill services revenue. We normally, on some deals, we, um, especially when it's, uh, you know, we have to coordinate the install, we generally have an installation fee that we charge, but it doesn't come anywhere near close to covering the cost of the actual implementation of these units. And really that's been um, modeled out in terms of the original pricing and the original go-to-market strategy that we had set a few, you know, three, three and a half years ago, where we want this to be as frictionless a, a process as possible for our customers. We don't want there to be anything that could possibly go wrong. We don't want to have to go to them after and say, oh, so we were going to, you know, charge you five grand for this is implementation and, you know, we're over budget and so we need to charge you another two and a half. That's not the model we wanted to take. We and and for sure. it really drives from R and D being able to build the product so that it required the least touch possible to get it into a wide variety of retail environments. Uh, we work with you know probably three to four dozen POS systems. We work with H two six four video, which is kind of the video standard right now for IP security cameras, um, which allows us mm. to work with a ton of different cameras, but not everything. We also have an ability to work with analog cameras. We, we really, when we install this system, we want to be able to work with any environment that we can get into. And we see that as a learning experience to make our product better and make the configuration process better by learning the different types of environments that are out there in different markets. And so we could charge for it, uh, but the way that we've modeled this out and the, the kind of the way that we sell this to our customers is we are going to take security off your hands and we're going to do it for you and we're going to charge you a standard monthly fee to do that it's really a managed service for for the security um but really the the main value prop is that we're getting proactive instead of being reactive that's really interesting so it's kind of like you're taking the long view uh on on these uh customers and essentially baking that in to your pricing model uh, on a recurring basis going forward i kind of liken this to you know um, giving away the soap dispenser for free and selling the soap kind of analogy where you That's kind of absorb the costs. Yeah, you absorb the costs of uh, the initial setup and, and whatnot for the longer term of managing that service uh, going forward. And I think it, it too is, is a, is a serious trust factor, right? Because we're, you know, we work with banks um, and we're, we're taking on their security infrastructure and you can't have a non-operational security system in, in a retail environment because a lot of liability can take place in front of those cameras that you need to capture to make sure that you're covering yourself. Uh, and that's why a lot of security systems are looked at as an insurance policy, because it is something that you can go to the video. So you can go back to the video to watch what happened in store and, and make sure that you have the video proof uh, to back up if there is any kind of liability that that occurs. And so I think, uh, you know, you and I can probably spend a, a full episode talking about just geeking out over revenue and service models and stuff like that. But uh, m- moving along, I guess, uh, you know, you, you've been at uh, Solink now for about four years. And, and during that time, you've grown the finance function from just yourself to about three or four people now. 
And uh, the full team has grown from 13 people from when you joined to now around 55. So obviously, uh, you know, you've seen a lot of growth uh, since you've joined. And in the past year, Solink raised $5 million. And so how has your role in particular evolved over that time? And what were some of the most challenging aspects uh, of your role through this growth? Yeah, no, I, I think the the probably the best way to look at it is you know joining a company at employee number thirteen. You know, you you are going to be uh, the expression I like is head chef and bottle washer. It's you know you, you, I might I may have been VP of whatever, but I was a team of one, right? And and having to kind of roll up my sleeves mm-hmm. um, and do payroll and you know design our vacation liability sheet from scratch in Excel, and you know you have to be able to do all these things that you that you've seen teams of people do when when you're at you know on an audit team visiting a, a client that you know would typically have a finance team of five to ten people. Um, but having the experience, you know, having gained the experience at Uptelian, that was why I was comfortable being able to to handle that at that point. Um, but then seeing the transition over time to, you know, going from 13 out of 55 people, you start to get deep in in a bunch of different kind of vertical areas of expertise. And it gets deep enough that you realize that that needs to be handed off to somebody that that is a full role now that you've, you know, you, you may be very efficient at doing it because you've been doing it for three years, but it, it, it is something mm-hmm. that naturally can be handed off to somebody. And so the first function there was um, our, our coordination of our, of our um, installations and operations. And so I handed that off to our operations manager, Mitch, who was probably the first person um, that I'd hired on my team um, right out of Carleton University, phenomenal kid. Uh, and he really took that and ran with it. And now he you know, has a, has a team on the operations team reporting into him. Um, and then the second person was, was Steph, wow. my, my general accountant. Uh, and that was really because I needed some, you know, accounting help because it, you know, we'd gotten to the point of size where it, there was just too much for one person to be able to do. Um, but you always, there's kind of two ways to grow a team or sorry, two ways to grow the output from a team. Uh, and it's tools and it's people and you can do one or the other, but you can't only do one. Right, you can add twenty people to the team, but without the right tools, they're not going to be effective. And you can add twenty tools to the team, but without enough people to run them, you're not going to be effective. But it's a balance between the two. Yeah. And so, in the beginning, it was adding the tools in place. It was building the workbooks, building automation, and then the next step was to add the people to to process that. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'd never really thought about it that way. The the two aspects of of tools and people to grow and scale uh, a, a team and an organization. Talk to me about your kind of most recent raise process any words of advice for finance leaders going through a raise process for the first time i would time? say um for the first time is is pretty daunting um i would say a lot of, a lot of the different a lot of the experience especially coming out of a firm uh lends well to going through the diligence process it's effectively like an audit they you know your the investors are looking for liability to make sure that when they're putting their money with the company and they're investing that it's going to be um you know it's going to be taken taken care of and it's going to go into growth and not um you know into a into a hole potentially of of liability that's been undisclosed and so understanding how you as an audit team member may have wanted to see the audit working papers will lead very well into preparing them for the investors diligence team i think that's probably the, the that's probably the advice that i received uh, from a, a number of individuals before last year when we were getting ready for the fundraise where they were saying, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot like an audit and, you know, you've done a lot of audits. So, you know, you, you'd be able to handle this, but 
I think it, uh, you know, and also being aware of the timeline of the process. It's not something that can get done in, you know, a week or two. It's something that is going to take a month to a month and a half to get through. I think 45 days is probably standard. Um, sure. and so understanding that it's, it is a marathon. It's not a, it's not a sprint and, uh, you have to understand the finish line and, and the Gantt chart that t- that it takes of different things to get to that finish point. And and so last question here before we jump into our quick fire round, and that is, in your opinion, what is the importance of the finance function at a technology company? Yeah, no, I I think the finance function. I mean, obviously, you know, tracking results is you know financial results is going to be the most the most kind of core function, um, but it's also going to be the support that finance can give to the other functions. Uh, and that is, you know, to the product management in terms of pricing uh, and market opportunity, to the R&D team in terms of shred, in terms of, you know, budgeting for hiring, uh, for different tools, analysis of, um, you know, build estimates to, to build different features and the value of those features, um, you know, within the market opportunity, um, you know, uh, supporting sales, especially on the, you know, letting them understand not just, you know, work off a pricing sheet, but actually understand the underlying, um, you know, uh, economies or economics that are that are built into the pricing, so that when they're making a deal and they need, mm-hmm. they're asked to move on the deal, they understand really what that means for the overall deal economics. So it's really just being a partner to the different functions of the business and and catalyzing them to be better at their at at what they're doing by giving them information that's relevant and actionable. Um, to so that their decision making is is educated. What I'd like to do now is uh, jump into our quick fire round. And so the way this works is I'll ask you a couple of questions and you'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right, let's do it. So what is your go to online resource for all things startup finance related? TechCrunch. Your favorite productivity hack? Uh, going for a midday run. Clear my mind. That's probably a uh, a very underutilized hack that I didn't even realize until a couple years into Solink. But um, being able to kind of clear my head midday after a bunch of meetings or something really sets me up for a very productive afternoon. Well, that's that's a really good way to kind of you know split up your morning and your afternoon. So yeah, I haven't heard that one before. That's a good one. Um, what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? Payroll. <laughs> And important, uh, yeah, making sure that the team is is paid on time for sure. There's uh, there, there's nothing worse than than the feeling of potentially, um, you know, being late on payroll. You know, there are a lot of things that people will forgive you for, but people don't show up on Monday if they don't get paid. For sure, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what's one tech jargon that makes you cringe? ICO. <laughs> are, are people still talking about ICOs? I thought that was uh, last I, year. I don't think so. I think I'm the only one talking about them, and I'm just talking about them with a lot of shame. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and lastly, what's the best advice that you've received so far in your career? The best advice that I think I've ever received, and I, I may butcher this, um, but I'm going to try to kind of relay this the way I, 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 I heard it, um, was anyone can command a ship in a harbor. But it's really, you know, when you see the storm coming on the horizon, that's when you, that's when you become, uh, you know, a real leader hmm. is when is, is what you do in preparation for that storm and, and in that storm. I think it's probably the best way to, yeah. I, it may have been a little butchered, but I think that the, the message is, 
is um, that's very profound with me over to over time mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure well thanks a lot Corey. really appreciated your time this morning and uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you uh, really learned a lot about uh, the different kind of uh, revenue pricing models that that Solink offers how you think about churn both from a customer standpoint revenue standpoint as well as some of the tools and uh, people and processes that has to be put in place when scaling a team uh, going from uh, 13 to over 50 and uh, it's really been a fascinating discussion and i've enjoyed it a lot so thanks a lot Corey. really appreciate it thank you very much i've, I've appreciated the opportunity to talk about everything awesome all right take care now bye bye